0: Welcome to episode 92 of the Robot Report Podcast. I'm Steve Crow, editorial director of the Robot Report. Happy Friday, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Joined as always fresh back from a trip to the Sin City, Las Vegas. My partner in crime here, and editor and founder of the mobile robot guide, Mike Oitzman. Mike, what's going on, man? Good to see you. Good to
1: hear you. Good to see you. Welcome back. Yeah, it's good to be back, Steve. We're, you know, now we're here in smoky California. we got a couple <laughs> of fires that are making making, the smoke is back. So it's the smoky season here. And Gary, you were saying this is the first one of the season? Is that what you were saying before? It's, it's the first one to blow in our direction. There have right. certainly been other fires, but, uh, and, and kudos to Cal Fire for just not, knocking everything down quickly, except for what's happening up on the Oregon border. But uh, yeah, it, it we knew it was inevitable, right? So, but nothing to nothing that you and your wife are concerned about? No, well, we're, yeah, for the moment, we're, we're, we're safe. Yeah. Um, you know, but our hearts and minds go out to the folks that are in harm's way east of Sacramento. Yeah. Jesus.
0: Um, all right. So we'll be safe there. Uh, we're going to get into Mike was out at the commercial uh, UAV show in Las Vegas this week. So we'll get uh, a debrief from Mike here in a few minutes on that show. But we do have to talk quickly, Mike, about our upcoming events, Robo Business, the Field Robotics uh, Engineering Forum. They're co-located together out in Santa Clara, California, uh, October 19th and 20th. We have basically the full agenda announced. You can check them out at robobusiness.com, fieldroboticsengineeringforum.com as well. But we wanna plug the career fair that we're gonna be running at the show on October 20th. So it takes place right after the event ends. Uh, It's open to anybody who's looking for, is, is it your first job in the robotics field? Are you looking for new opportunities to advance your career or change up what you're doing? in the robotics field that's open to everybody. Uh, it's opportunity for both job seekers and hiring companies to meet people in person. We've done this several times already with our friends at Mass Robotics. We'll be running this one as well. It's free to attend. If you sign up for the career fair, if you register, and we'll make sure to include a link to register in the show notes here. Attendees who register for the career fair, you get free a free expo only pass to both days of robo business. So it's a great opportunity to not only come and see uh, new products, new enabling technologies and demos on the show floor, but network with people who are hiring. Uh, and there's plenty of companies that are hiring. Right now, There's uh, we got Caterpillar, AMD, Lattice, Toyota Research Institute, and there's many other companies that are going to be signing up for this in the coming days. So again, if you're looking for, is it your first job in robotics or you're looking to switch up and advance your career, this is the perfect opportunity for you to do that. Again, it takes place October 20th at the conclusion of Robo Business out in Santa Clara, California. If you want to sign up you can go to robobusiness.com again we're going to have 100 plus exhibitors there there's going to be 60 plus speakers uh pitchfire robotic startup competition a startup workshop tons of networking opportunities and much much more just this morning we announced the opening keynote of the show with which is anthony Jules. he's the co-founder of robust ai i think they were founded in 2019 of course with rodney brooks and christensen mohammed amir Anthony himself has 30 plus years uh, in robotics, AI, machine learning. He's a tremendously well-known and, and talented guy in this field and is going to give sort of a far-sighted look into the future uh, and, and how to design and develop robotic systems that can truly collaborate with humans. So we're really looking forward to that. Again, if you want to check out everything, go to robobusiness.com. Also on today's show, Mike, is Keyshore Boyalakuntala. He's the VP of products at Berkshire Gray. They've been in the news several for several reasons recently, including a, a pretty high profile partnership with FedEx. You did this interview with Keyshore while I was out on vacation. So just quickly tease it. What, what are people going to hear from Keyshore here in a few minutes?
1: Well, Keyshore's Vastly experienced in, as, a, as a product leader, um, he's running the product team, uh, product management at, at Berkshire. So the conversation we talk about, you know, the roadmap, how they work on the roadmap, some, some product management related things. So geeking out a little bit uh, there with the fellow product management leadership. So uh, it was fun, fun, uh, you know, honest conversation uh, about what's going on with products at, at Berkshire.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So again,
1: we'll play that here in a few
0: minutes. We do have to get into a couple quick news items and recap Mike's experience at the commercial UAV show. Again, we have you folks covered with our network of robotics sites. You can check us out if you don't already at the Robot Report, Mobile Robot Guide, Robotics Business Review, and Collaborative Robotics Trends. So Mike, just take us through your, your at the show for what, two days?
1: Was it two days you were there? Yeah, I was out there for Wednesday and Thursday, three-day show, but went out for, for two Two of the three days and you know it's been probably i don't know four or five years since i last attended this event and, and man it was way bigger than it's been in years past i think they had a record number of of uh vendors there so that i think is a is sort of a bellwether for what's going on on the uas uav side of the world so good news that 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 market's growing um and they had lots of great content for submarkets like search and rescue so there's a whole three day track on search and rescue, on agriculture, on autonomous drones, a separate track just for drone autonomy. Um, that's mostly the, the, the content that I attended. Um, delivery drones, that type of stuff. So uh, yeah, a lot, lot of great discussion. Um, and Steve I witnessed a very interesting um, demonstration on uh, Wednesday night. They had an a, a, after dark, They out in the big parking lot there at Caesars Forum, uh, they had a, an outdoor demonstration uh, by a company that actually works with police departments and actually does training for police departments about how to map a crime scene uh, with a drone huh. so this this is pretty wild they had it they had a model laid down on the ground uh, by the way, they had to put ice in. They, they didn't bring in a cadaver? No, no cadaver. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, like, we were gathering. A lot of people were sort of looking outside their balcony windows and trying to figure out what was going on with this body in the park. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so so it, it was so hot. I mean, the park, I guess the like asphalt was like 140 degrees, so they had to put ice on the ground for, you know, the half an hour before the show. The events started to, to sort of cool the ground so this uh, model could lay on the ground and then they talked about how they did the lighting and then the drone you know flew around it basically did a photogrammet pho, this is a weird word photogrammetric 3D view so the drone flew around took a bunch of pictures and then they stitched all of that imagery together so that uh, and I'll I'll put this a link to this cuz I'll I'll get access to the actual data set from the output of this demo um, you get a you know a, a 3D image that you can fly around in and look at uh, you know the actual scene afterwards and i guess you know basically they were talking about if you go through their class which i think is a whole day long class and then hands-on experience it can become evidence for an actual criminal criminal trial oh wow yeah so that was that was interesting never seen anything like that before but that's definitely an emerging market for the use of drones now nothing automated in that whole thing they still i guess still manually done but i bet somebody's gonna come up with, you know, an automation that helps run that, that whole imaging, you know, at some point in the future.
0: What else, what are what are some other, were there some other major trends that you saw or some big announcements from companies that you, you saw?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I think one of the not- things that I noticed about all of the equipment was that that a uh, bunch of hexacopters and octocopters now seem to be the big the big thing because everybody's trying to carry heavy payloads and you need the big copters and everything was huge steve i mean we're talking about three four five six foot diameter hexacopters and octocopters it just looked frightening <laughs> right you would not want to be anywhere near one of these things when they take off just
0: because. no i think that's what the general public really doesn't know again a lot of these videos any robotics company, you know, if it's a self-driving car, you know, they, they really jazz them up and they're creative with their editing process, all that. They're really loud. At least they used to be. I'm, I'm sure these, as they're getting larger, I can't imagine that they're also getting quieter. They're like, No,
1: it's, you know, yeah,
0: that's, that's a big problem for the drone delivery space, you know, a space that really hasn't taken off like everybody thought it would. Can you imagine how loud it would be if you had these massive drones flying the town every day, multiple times a day. Nobody really wants that.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, and I think that's what's, what's evolving here. um And there were two, there were two significant announcements related to that, that, that happened during the show this week. First of all, Matternet, um, one of the leading drone delivery solutions out there out of Switzerland. And the drone Matternet uh, M2 drone has achieved a type certification by the FAA. They're the first, company worldwide to receive that that type certification so that really what this means is that they can now, uh, and it took four years to get this done, um, but they've approved their safety and reliability of the M2 aircraft and it means that now they can fly over people, they can fly over um, buildings that are occupied, all of that stuff. Uh, and it really what it means uh, that they now have a process that they, the FAA does that they can evaluate you know, an airframe like this for its safety, as well as all the process flight operation processes for MatterNet, and that'll now be—they've set the bar. And it means that all these other companies now can follow suit and get also receive the type certification. So I think that we're right now in the starting gates for a burgeoning, um, you know, market that's going to explode now—not uh, literally, but <laughs> it's yeah. gonna, it's going to be an explosion of applications. And then the, also the FAA beyond visual line of sight committee also uh, released their report. And it was a very interesting keynote with committee members there talking about how they went through this process. And so it's been like 18 months of 24 months of work here where they worked with all of the industry to come up with the rules for beyond visual line of sight operation for drones. And now that will go into the feedback phase that the FAA does for any new rule. And that means for the next six to 12 months now, uh, you can give your feedback on any of the recommendations that are in this uh, report. And then within the next, you know, what, one to two years, it'll become a reality now that uh, the FAA will define the rules um, for beyond visual line of sight. And that becomes a commercial process that I think this industry is also looking forward to as well. And in the midst of all of that, I got a chance to see firsthand the Amazon Prime Air machine, which uh, I think is a very interesting design. They are actually, they've got, you know, they're doing this all with waivers, but they've got two operational sites at the moment, one in central California and the other, I think in North, North Carolina, where they are running deliveries from uh, Amazon warehouse to customers with this drone. And this is a really novel looking drone. It uses both fixed wing, but it's, you know, it's got like this circular, I don't know how to describe it, but it's got this circular wing structure around it with, I think, eight props on it. And, uh, you know, never, never lands. You, You basically fly over to your, to your yard and it gets within about a foot of the ground. And then it, sort of drops the package out the back and then takes off again. So that's you know interesting that that you know we're this is going to become a reality here, I think, within the probably next three to five years that uh, you know, folks like myself who live in a rural part of the country could could actually get deliveries done, right? Yeah, I don't know. I'm just skeptical. <laughs> I'm, just very, I'm just very
0: skeptical. I mean this yeah. stuff has been talked about forever.
1: And... Yeah, well, well, I think the big thing here is the FAA is, is fully engaged and the work that's being done there, that, that's always been the big hurdle, right? So they've sure. said since the beginning, flying over people is verboten, you can't do that. And so now that, you know, they are been working with the industry, the maturity that's happened. And a lot of that's about flight processes, you know, describing um, the pro- the flight process, if the drone is to fail, you know, while it's flying over somewhere, how does it get out of the air safely without crashing, Right? How, where does it land? How do they recover it? Right? You know what things are on. What is the redundancy? Do you need double redundancy, triple redundancy, that type of things? You know, for the aircraft to be able to get safely out of the air, as opposed to just failing and falling, as you know, a lot of the consumer drones may do if there's a problem. Right?
0: Yeah, I think that's you hit on tracking these. How how do they track these drones? That's to me. Mm-hmm. I know there's some some technology and software systems out there to to do that, but even that it's a really complicated process or, or problem. Uh, mm-hmm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure how they figure out how they can monitor every potential drone that's in the air at, at all times. Yeah. Um, yeah seems right. like a nightmare, but at, at least they're they're seemingly moving forward. And certainly the the certification that Matternet received, you said it took four years. Certainly it's not going to take four years for other companies no. going forward. I wouldn't think.
1: No. Think that's- it just took this
0: it took this long because it was the first time through.
1: First time through, they were setting all the rules, they were talking through all the process, they were documenting the heck out of it, you know, there's all of that work, hard work was done. And now it'll just be a cookie cutter process at some point from this point on, right?
0: Yeah, I always just come back to how, you know, I've talked to a lot of other folks in the drone industry, the commercial drone industry that have been so frustrated by this process and just how Mm -hmm. long I remember talking to. Um, Helen Greiner about this on an earlier episode of the podcast, I believe. So, of course, she's one of the co-founders of iRobot. And then she founded Sci-Fi Works, which was a commercial drone company. Mm -hmm. I think kind of, I don't know, pioneered. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but certainly they were one of the earlier companies to build a tethered drone. That's what they built was a tethered drone to enable longer flight times, right? So they ended up doing a lot of work with the military over in Afghanistan, just because of the lack of progress that was being made or even allowed in the U S because of the FAA. And she'll tell you, and, and a lot of other folks would tell you that these BVLOS flights were capable many, many moons ago. Um, right. But, yeah, well, you're you're I right. understand the FAA's job. They got to be diligent about this. They got to make sure they go about it the right
1: way. It's just, you know, yeah. and, and Steve, the other thing that it's important to note, starting next week, I think on the 15th of the month, now every drone consumer or commercial and even RC planes now, for the RC hobbyists, I believe it covers them as well. You have to have a transponder now on your aircraft if it leaves the ground um, that tells everybody else that this aircraft is in the air and where it is. So um, that's now, that that happens next, that starts next week.
0: So and that's where it gets complicated, right? So, and I don't know enough about this. Yep. Is there a way, it's not like these drones can't fly if that transponder is not enabled. Right, Bored.
1: but you can get you can. I don't understand all the rules, and I, I need. To, I'm gonna dig dig a little deeper into to this as part of the, my my story. But but yeah, it's What's missing is that, um. For example, the way that you know aircraft transponders work today, you have other aircraft can see where other aircraft are related to each other, right? Right. Sure. And and while each air each of these drones now have to have a transponder that says they're in the air that ID, you know the air you know the the aircraft, um what's missing now is and there's still a lot of discussion going on i heard some of this at the show about what happens with traffic control right and air traffic control integration and all of that that's not hap- that's doesn't exist yet and there's other uh, technology that needs to evolve to to manage swarms of drones and track swarms of drones to know where they are aircraft to aircraft and so that's the next level of innovation that has to happen you know in this market now that it'll evolve but those things are also going to that that's going to be a burden for some of the innovation going forward but in the big picture it's probably good because if you know there's hundreds of thousands of things in the air right it becomes a problem so yeah
0: yeah i i I would uh, i would love for this to become a reality i just don't see it i mean it's my local uh pharmacy or my local grocery store it's like oh crap i forgot a loaf of bread and i'm having a some people over, like, can you fly it to me in 20 minutes instead of me having to rush out and get it last second?
1: That's the ideal scenario, right? I think it's taken longer than anybody had hoped yeah. for, but I think what I heard a lot of positive discussion that that were, you know, that is evolving now, that there's momentum well, moving, moving in keep, that direction. Yeah.
0: Keep in mind it is an industry event, right? So this yeah. is all yep. these are all these are all pro drone (laughs) folks who who are gathering there right yeah i don't know it's just uh, i'm just been i've been scorned by this i guess i think i've been duped so many times covering different types of delivery drones and hey it's going to happen blah 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 and then verizon shuts down its company that it just bought a year ago because there's been no progress (laughs) made right so
2: yeah
0: uh, i'll believe it when i see it but you know i'm hopeful i i I hope to see it right this is great stuff yeah Uh, You mentioned Amazon or we mentioned Amazon there and a couple of other Amazon related stories that we need to dive into here. Perhaps most importantly is the Federal Trade Commission has begun an investigation into Amazon's pending nearly $2 billion acquisition of iRobot. Of course, the concerns here are what's really happening with the data Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. captured by iRobot's Roomba robot vacuums. And then what does Amazon do with it? Does it somehow give them an unfair advantage in the retail industry. So there's some examples. Uh, This was first reported by Politico. So we'll make sure that we link to our story about this. But again, I've already said, I don't really think that this is even a thing that Amazon could have an unfair advantage with consumers. You know, the the room was moving around my house with creating these detailed maps of my space. And somehow it figures out that I have a couch or I might need a new couch. And it's going to the next time I log on to Amazon.com, it's going to suggest new items, new couches for me. And I know it's not just a couch, like you can go to any other object, you know, chairs and tables and lamps and stuff like that, that maybe the Roomba can see, but I just don't see that really happening. I mean, this is targeted advertising. I get targeted advertising in all walks of life as it is right now on the internet, especially right. And it really doesn't have a tangible Influence on my actual buying habits, right? Especially with that example that is so commonly used about the couch. It's like you buy. How often do you buy a couch? You buy a couch once every ten years, something like that. So, yeah. but that's one. That's one of the concerns anyway. Is that it's it's going to give Amazon uh, a leg up over other retailers who don't have that insight into your home that Amazon potentially has now. And they're also looking just basically how does this line of robot vacuums now fit into Amazon's other existing smart home products like Ring, Alexa,
1: so on and so forth. But maybe
0: there's a lot of people there's a lot of people who are asking for this not to happen.
1: Yeah, maybe more likely it's going to notice that the toilet paper roll is getting a little thin. Yeah. Time to time to reorder the toilet paper.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm so just in full disclosure like I'm just so sick of this conversation. And yeah. I don't know. I I have a I have a feeling that this is not going to happen. This is this is based off of no inside information that I have or nothing. It's just a hunch, like some of it's maybe the world that we're currently living in right now, the climate of things, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I've spoken with some people at iRobot and uh, you know off the record about this and. Uh, they appreciate us sharing some of the stuff that Colin Engel has gone out and written about in the last couple of weeks or so on and so forth. But this is all I'll say: a Roomba is not an essential device. You don't, you don't. Nobody needs a Roomba to get through the day, or right? Does it make your? It's a nice to have. If
1: you're so concerned about the data privacy, just don't get a frigging Roomba. Just don't buy one. I think I'm a little bit, if there's one part of the whole acquisition that I'm skeptical of, and and again, having been in product management for a big chunk of my career, it's, you know, what kind of information is, or, or can Amazon's sales, you know, data bring to the product management team to give them insight about competitors, right? Selling through Amazon, like right? what's the most popular model of their competitor that's selling that, you know, that's data they may have access to. And, you know that's the type of thing for me that's probably more likely to come out of something like this, you know, where they're own an actual product company, right? or becoming a product company with their all of their Amazon home brands, right? think about think about TV
0: advertising. Think about I, I always just go back and the Super Bowl is I think they have the most expensive commercials of ever any TV advertising. and I, I understand they have a general generic, demographic of who's watching right mm-hmm. and here's the age range it's you know probably predominantly male they have mm-hmm. x amount of uh household income they have a very generic profile of who's watching the super bowl maybe if this is all true and irobot's capturing this data and amazon somehow will they have more information perhaps i, I just always go back to you know I, these companies who advertise. Uh, at the Super Bowl, spend millions of dollars for mm-hmm. 20 seconds, 30 seconds or whatever. I've never gone out and, Oh, I need to go buy that Mercedes Benz car that they just advertised or, Oh, I need to go buy. You know, it's like, if you have some self-control, it's just like, I, I just don't understand how this is going to influence. There's so many other areas in life where you're being watched or data is an issue. If people really have a problem with this, like get, you know, are they willing to get rid of their cell phones? Like yeah, you, that's people amazing. to people understand how much information Apple and Google know about. They know about our literally they know about your physical location. There's there's all sorts of ways where, again, if if you're using your GPS or Google Maps or Apple, they can they're literally tracking your location probably at all times of every second of the way, right? Whereas maybe there's been outrage about that, but are people willing to give up their cell phones or are we willing to give up our our computer use and our internet use and Facebook. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> like, yeah. I just don't understand the outrage about this specific example. I just don't get it. I mean, it's a robot vacuum. Is it a nice to have? Yeah, it does a decent job of cleaning my house, sure. Just don't buy one. And I think the the interesting part is there's a lot of people in the robotics ecosystem that are, are, are saying this. It's not, you know, mom and dad consumer, mm-hmm. you know, it's people who, and maybe it's because they're a little bit more educated about the topic or whatever, but I don't know, this just seems completely overblown, but there's a lot of advocate advocacy groups now who are actually, they wrote an open letter to the Federal Trade Commission, asking them to not, <laughs> to strike down this pending acquisition. And I have a quote here. And again, we can link to the open letter in, in the show notes if you want. But again, this is part of maybe I'm misreading it. Maybe you can set me straight on this, Mike. But the quote is, quote, Amazon seeks to unduly expand its market power by eliminating a competitor through acquisition rather than through organic growth. The company also aims to minimize fair competition by exploiting consumer data not accessible to other market participants. That's the end of the quote. So we kind of just touched upon that second part, right? Uh, Exploiting consumer data. The first part is where I'm confused. Amazon seeks to unduly expand its market power by eliminating a competitor. I know that they've done this in the past. I know know, they buy up, I think one example was diapers.com. They bought up diapers.com and then they just killed it, right? So they bought it to get rid of it.
1: Well, it, yeah, I mean, and that's an example where they've got it. they've got an Amazon white labeled products, you know, competitors. Yeah, but like, iRobot is a competitor of Amazon. No, I don't. Understand. Yeah, like,
0: what is Am- Amazon's? But that's what the, that's what this advocacy group is saying. Yes, they're looking to expand its market power by eliminating a competitor. And that competitor being iRobot. Right?
1: That doesn't make any sense in this case. Yeah, I agree.
0: So <laughs> if you look at you know i iRobot is most known for the Roomba
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh,
0: robot vacuum. Mm-hmm. They don't have any other cleaning robots is their thing, right? They don't have any other type of consumer robot. I know they've been working on the lawnmower for 20 plus years. It's has major problems. They swept it under the rug. They blamed it on COVID. I've been told it's not because of COVID that it just doesn't work very well. I And then Amazon has this Astro robot that also doesn't work very well and doesn't do anything. Hmm. So is that how they're trying to make them out to be competitors? Is that they both work
1: on consumer robotics? I mean, it's two vastly different types of consumer robots. You know, so so Steve, if we've got any Amazon folks listening or iRobot folks listening, I want to ask them to bring back my gutter cleaning robot. That was the best product that, that I was anticipating. I bought that site unseen, but it didn't work. Right. So I would love to have a a gutter cleaning robot. That's something that I would buy again, if it was functional and it could clean all my gutters because I hate doing that every
0: year. Yeah. So again, we'll link to this. I haven't read through this letter, the open letter from the advocacy group, hundred percent, but just reading that it just doesn't, again, I could be missing something Mm -hmm. if I am people listening, please correct me. One, I, I don't understand why this data privacy is a big deal. <laughs> the cat's out of the door as far as I'm concerned mm-hmm. when it comes to our own sort of data privacy due to other sorts of uh, internet connected devices that we use much more fre- frequently than a Roomba. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't consider iRobot and Amazon to be competitors. They just couldn't be They couldn't be comp- two different companies. Like they, they couldn't be farther apart from each other. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I just have this hunch like there's... People hate Amazon with a passion, right? They just despise the company. Anything they do, people rip on them. Part of it, I, I, I understand. I, I just have a feeling this isn't gonna happen. I hope it happens, because it would be a, a great thing for consumer robotics. iRobot's a tremendous company. They've really sort of pioneered a lot of different things that you're just seeing now mm-hmm. in robotics today. If you ever walk through the iRobot museum, you'll see all these different uh, robotics systems that they've built, and these enabling technologies that they've built, many, many moons ago that were too early for their days. There was really no sort of market viability for them when iRobot them, built them and you're you're seeing similar things sort of just start to roll out now or in the last couple of years. So I, I just don't think they have malicious intent with what they're doing with their Roombas. I, I just don't see it. A part of me, I, I just have a hunch like this isn't going to happen. Yeah. I don't know.
1: The, the, anyway. your, what's not going to happen,
0: the deal? The deal, I, yeah. I just feel like- yeah. I don't know, they're, they're going to get so much. There, there's a bunch of these people contributing to this open letter. It's certainly not going to be the last of them. I, I just feel like these these the, the people on the FTC who, who are trying to make this happen are just going to be bombarded with complaints. Mm. And it's going to be such a pain in the ass for them to go through this deal that they're just going to, and I know that's not how they operate, but I don't know, part of me just feels like this isn't going to happen, which I hope that, I hope it happens. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it would be a great thing for consumer robotics. We've talked a little bit about combining these forces, right? Combining Amazon who has, they have great engineers. They have unlimited amounts of money, it would seem. And then you combine the robotics expertise and history and knowledge. manufacturing ability. And manufacturing, as you've often talked about with iRobot, I I think it could just be a a match made in Mm -hmm. heaven. Again, iRobot's been trying to find other types of consumer robots that it can sell into your homes for however long they've been around, Mm -hmm. 30 years, whatever it's been. And a lot of it hasn't worked out and they know why it hasn't worked out. So maybe if they combine these forces, Maybe they'll find a, a path forward for other types of consumer robots to, to help us out in our everyday lives. So hopefully this happens. Um, and we'll we'll make sure to keep everybody updated as the story progresses. Last story here, Mike, uh, again from Amazon. Just happened today. We wrote about it on the robotreport.com. So you can check it out. They've continued their acquisition streak mm-hmm. today. They announced that they've agreed to acquire a Belgium-based company called I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this name right. Kloostermans is how I'm going to say it. Uh, They specialize in different types of robotic systems. They've actually been selling products and robots to Amazon since at least 2019. They make products to move and stack heavy pallets and totes. And they also make robots to package products for customer orders. And again, Amazon's been using both of those products since at least 2019. Obviously, Amazon's buying iRobot. They've Acquired in the past, Dispatch. They have acquired Canvas Technology. They have acquired Zooks. I might be missing one or two. Uh Kiva Systems way back in 2012. So again, it just seems like Amazon is is continuing to fi- try to figure out and, and bring these products in house that can help it scale up its e commerce business.
1: Yeah, and they're, they're you would think who, who is this startup? Kloosterman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But 140. 140- uh, your old company. So definitely a company that's been around for a long time, probably right through the industrial age, but uh now doing robotics. So in, yeah, I, again, an acquisition that's going to help them with their throughput of their warehouses. Yeah. Kloostermans,
0: if that's how you say it, founded in, was it 1884? Yeah. So 138 years old, closing in on 140. 140- Years of existence. I think they've been a family-owned, certainly a privately-owned company, and maybe family-owned mm-hmm. that entire time. I, it, their website, like I hate to say it, their website is horrendous.
1: <laughs> no need. To, <laughs> it's horrendous. Yeah.
0: There's no no need for anybody listening to this to go visit the Kloosterman's website. We link to it in our article to try to get, learn a little bit more about what it is that they're doing, or you know, are there specific examples of how they have helped Amazon. You'll see some of the older products that they've built going back many, many decades, but there's not really a lot out there. So, you know, it is Friday afternoon here. So I'm not sure how much we'll learn by the end of the day, but we'll we'll try to learn a little bit more about specifically how Klustermans has helped Amazon so far. But again, they've bought, they've been selling products to Amazon since at least 2019. That includes products to move in stack heavy pallets and totes, which obviously is a very important part of any logistics operation, but also to uh, robots to package products that customers have ordered from amazon.com. Klustermans has about 200 employees. They're going to, are going to join Amazon's operation over in Europe. Mm. Um, There's no price that's been disclosed for this, but Amazon did come out and say, that the acquisition is going to help it scale up in those areas yeah. of, you know, moving heavy products around and packaging products. So that's really why it's doing this. So again, I always come at it from this angle. If Amazon is acquiring a company, they must be a pretty solid company. Um, their technology must be pretty, pretty sophisticated and work really, really well. I would venture a guess if Amazon's willing to, to buy them and, and bring them in house. Mm-hmm. So. We'll, we'll also keep you guys updated if we learn any more about that. And then we will just make a final note here. Uh, the news broke, I think it was yesterday, maybe it was Wednesday. Jim Rock, you know, the longtime CEO of Seagrid, he was in that position for almost a decade. Uh, he announced that he's stepping down from his position at Seagrid. Uh, he announced, made the announcement on LinkedIn. They've already named his replacement. a gentleman who has been a C-suite executive at a software uh, company, I think in Connecticut or New York, is, is now going to head up, uh, now be the CEO of Seagrid. But I don't know if it was a surprising move or not. We, we broke the story, was it last month, Mike, two months ago, that they had to lay off 90-plus employees mm-hmm. at Seagrid. about, I think, a fourth of their 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 workforce. I don't know if these two events are related. Are they unrelated? I don't know. I haven't reached out to Jim. But just an interesting nugget that one of the more well-known, I think, uh, reputable developers of amr's uh their ceo just stepped down so it's a little bit of a newsworthy nugget don't you think
1: yep yep and uh you know again another pivot point for them to sort of maybe change their direction retrench rethink uh you know what the next step in the future holds for secret so we'll keep following this and following the progress of secret as they move forward
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we have you folks covered with all the latest news of the global robotics industry with our network of websites. You can check us out at The Robot Report, Robotics Business Review, Mobile Robot Guide, and Collaborative Robotics Trends.
1: Well, on the show today, I'm excited to welcome Kishore Boyalakuntla, uh, VP of Product for Warehouse Automation Provider, uh, Berkshire Gray. Uh,
3: Kishore, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Mike. Uh, Thanks for the invite and hello to the Robot Report podcast audiences. Uh, Thank you.
1: Yeah. Well, Kishore, you know, first thing I wanted to start uh, talking with you about is that I did a little research research about your background before the interview and and you have a long career in product management, especially uh, with enterprise software companies. And I think that we have some similar experiences in our background there. Um, but to, to begin with, I wanted to. I'm curious. Can you tell us a little bit about how you made that transition from product management uh, in a software company to product management in a hardware or robotics company? I know you had a, 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 a stay with a company, a 3D printer company. Maybe yeah. it was that transition? Tell us a little bit about your, your experience, um, of product management, leading product management. You know, in that transition, the differences between a pure software company and now a company that's got hardware elements to the, the product portfolio.
3: Sure, Mike. Um, what's common to both software and hardware products and product management is solving customer problems Yeah. Um, and translating customer needs to internal storytelling, to epics, to creating the right products for end customer. So at mm-hmm. the end of the day, that's very common between the two. Uh, product management is a profession I love. Uh, I love it because, you know, great product managers tend to change the world. The way people live, the way people consume products, sustainable and all that good stuff. Uh, I've been very fortunate early in my career uh, working with amazing mentors at SOLIDWORKS. Uh, SOLIDWORKS is a CAD product that Mm -hmm. is used around the world. So so basically, uh, you know, While working at SOLIDWORKS and leading the products there for many years, uh, a lot of 3D printing companies were working with us, taking their products Mm. out to the customer base. Uh, At SOLIDWORKS, we had one of the best channels in the world. These are resellers that sell our products. And we saw engineers, actually, the people that were designing our tool, designing using our software, also 3D printing the parts they were designing. So it's the same user Mm. doing two things. And so it was natural for a lot of 3D printing companies uh, to come talk to us and uh, partner with us, build solutions on top of SOLIDWORKS, and in fact, co-market it into the marketplace with the same channel. So I was traveling the world, launching products uh, every year, we have our annual worldwide conference, and on main stage, I used to invite 3D printing companies to come over and actually talk about their products. Because at the end of the day, both uh, SOLIDWORKS with its design, simulation, data management tools, plus 3D printing helps innovate early in the product development cycle. All right. Yep. That was a very natural extension. And so I worked with maybe six or seven 3D printing companies, launched them on main stage travel the world with them and so and I was a user myself I had like three 3D printers in my office and and so it just so happened uh, there was a 3D printing startup in Boston knew the CEO very very well we were chatting and it was just an organic transition from software to hardware you're right in the sense product management in hardware is very different or it is different in the sense now you're thinking of supply chain, you're now thinking mm. of manufacturing, the cogs and the gross margins and the impact of that are very different. Uh, you need to focus on cost per piece. Uh, there, there's a whole lot to hardware product management. And part of that is supply chain resiliency and a whole lot that goes into it. But there's an underlying common base, which is at the end of the day, a great product managers, have honed in an ability to understand customer problems in ways different from others and uh, creating the right solutions doesn't mean every product will succeed, but there is a commonality between the two.
1: Right. Well, I tell you what, we had John Herstic, on the, um, on the show uh, a, a year ago he's the ceo uh, uh he was the ceo of solidworks co-founder a founder of solidworks and founder of Onshape and i think that's one of my favorite interviews so i'm sure you you've, you've <laughs> talked with john he's a, he's an incredible human being and of course loves to talk he's, he's just an incredible guest
3: yeah he's an incredibly human being and a good friend i consider a good friend of mine great and in fact uh, he's the one that convinced me to move to product management so I was doing my MBA mm-hmm. and part of the entrepreneurship class, I had to interview an entrepreneur who better than John. Hmm. So we were talking and we were chatting and he says, hey, sure, you should be in product management. You have insights here that are meaningful. And a month later I moved into product management and three years later, I got the keys to the house at Solidworks, which was, uh, which was quite special. So he's instrumental in me and my career in meaningful
1: ways. That's great. What a what a great uh, kudos to John. Um, well, well, Let's talk now a little bit more about Berkshire Gray and what's going on there. So, tell us about your role uh, at Berkshire Gray now, and and your team, and and how uh, you guys you know influence and manage the, the product roadmap for for uh, Berkshire Gray.
3: Yeah. So, so uh, before I talk about my role, I should talk about the people at Berkshire Gray. Mm. Uh, an amazing group of individuals uh, that are customer centric and focused. And deeply, deeply care about hitting or exceeding the customer KPIs, and that begins with our CEO Tom Wagner, the core engineering team that joined early on, and so my transition into Berkshire Grey and robotics was incredibly easy because we have a great group of people doing some amazing stuff. Hmm. Um, the 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 way to think about product management at Berkshire Grey. Is uh is um you know solving complex warehouse problems uh with deep uh, relationships that are already in place with major retailers. Mm. Uh we have already announced publicly who they are, uh you know, and with FedExes of the World and others. So so uh in some ways my job became easy after I came on board because I could just quickly jump in and travel to a bunch of warehouses, meet a lot of people at these large retailers and small retailers that are uh, and they are doing some phenomenal changes in terms of innovation in robotics, AI, warehouses uh, and such. We are you know a lot of people don't realize it and it was one of my learnings very on. Yeah, warehouses are massively complex beings, mm, right? There are mm. millions of SKUs, with tens and thousands of SKUs moving through a warehouse. It's like an aircraft in flight. It's massively, massively complex. I'm an aerospace engineer. I tend to connect those two dots together. And so and I think uh, the the impact of a warehouse is beyond a product that's being delivered to somebody's home. It, is, it impacts the economy, it impacts, So, like we have seen the, through the pandemic and we can talk more about it later. But the point here is, this is a meaningful industry to be part of.
2: Mm.
3: This is a meaningful industry to make impact through amazing products. And that impacts literally every person in the US and the world at large, because at the end of the day, all those things are delivered either through either through a uh, a store or by e-commerce, right? And we know the shifts that are happening. So incredibly proud and thankful to be part of BG uh, and the amazing work the team is doing uh, impacting customers. So the product strategy at BG is listening to our customers. A lot of times they are innovating ahead of us and understanding those innovations and working with them to productize it uh, through the BG way, which is we have a whole spiral innovation process and all that stuff. So, so yes, uh, that's what that's what product management does at Berkshire Bay.
1: Hmm. Well, so you, since you mentioned when you talk about spiral innovation, right, and and working with clients to identify, you know, opportunities to, to automate, you know, a part of their workflow, how does that work? How do you have that conversation with a, with a client sparks an idea and now you need to go back to the engineering team and say, hey, we got this opportunity. Here's the problem. How can we solve this problem for our client?
3: Yeah, so, so at BG, we do have uh, a new product introduction process
2: mm-hmm.
3: where we are listening to customers and taking those ideas and doing this whole you know product introduction process and all this. Now, I I don't want to talk about the process, mm-hmm. but I'll give you a concrete example.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay,
3: um, uh, We have created a product called Robotic Product Sortation with Identification. Mm-hmm. Now we, it is the RPSI product. And if you actually go to our website, you'll actually see Uh, the videos of it, uh, and the website is www.berkshiregray.com, like Berkshire, G-R-E-Y for gray, which is gray matter, so the berkshiregray.com. And, uh, you know, warehouses are so complex that anything you put in a warehouse has an upstream and downstream impact, Mm. especially automation. So an existing warehouse that is used to a certain throughput and certain capacity and certain certain um you know um um throughput per square foot of the warehouse right and the productivity per square foot of the warehouse the minute you put intelligent robotics it can have an impact of increasing the upstream and downstream efficiencies in meaningful ways so so, uh, so a lot of times when customers say we want to put a robot in our warehouse, that's not the problem they are trying to solve. <laughs> yeah, right. What the problem they are trying to solve is much bigger than a robot sitting there because the robot is interacting with 10 other things.
2: Mm-hmm. So
3: in the case of robotic product sortation and identification, and if you see the video carefully, we solve many problems for uh, our customer. One, our packages. Packages are notoriously hard because because they tend to fold into themselves. Mm -hmm. They they don't have a regular, they are irregular shaped objects. And the packages can be made of paper, made of plastic, made of of any number of different materials that are there today and may come into the future. So, the first is how do you take a heap or a big, uh, uh, you know, somebody throws in 10 bags of packages into a hopper? How do you singulate it to a robot, Mm -hmm. right? Because uh, because that was a problem to solve. And we found a way to take this heap of packages and bring it up, a conveyor, while coming up, singulating it with ingenious, simple solutions, by the way. Hmm. And that is the key. In robotics, in the warehouse robotics, you cannot make it complex. And I will talk more about it later why. And then it comes to our robot that actually picks it now. Uh, the, the problem that needs to be solved here for this customer is zone skipping. In other words, you need to singulate it to a particular zip code that mm. it's going to be delivered to. So it was not just a picking problem. It's a, it's a problem where we need to singulate stuff from a heap of packages, which are notoriously hard, then pick it, and then identify it. So we actually saw created a whole new product called Hyperscanner. Literally, here's what happens. The package is dropped through the air, traveling a few feet. And while it is going, there are an array of cameras with lights taking several hundred pictures of it. And in a millisecond, we stitch all of it together to identify the zip code, with (laughs) P D F 417 and everything. And and, uh, with software, we can actually tie in that data to the, the, the package that's there. And then we do a secondary check to make sure it's going to the right place. And then we had to actually innovate on a whole uh, conveyance system that actually, there's a sweeper that sweeps it to a small um, you know bucket that catches this particular package, and then it travels and puts it into a bag that goes to a certain zip code. And once it is full, we tell the line operator that, hey, come take it out, right? So uh, I, I personally think it's a mistake for any robotics company to say, here's my point solution. Mr. Customer, you're on your own
2: go mm-hmm. implement
3: it, and now you figure out how to make it work. It's not going to happen. Now, the the I think that technology-wise, this is incredibly interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. But the
3: thing that is, I got away, which was amazing, is when I went actually to the, our customer side, they did not hire a robotics engineer to use it. It's the same line operator. The usability is so simple that they literally go to our human-machine interface, the HMI, hit the play button, uh, we have very, very, very high accuracy rates. And in fact, with the customer, uh, when we sell our systems, robotic systems, intelligent robotic systems, we actually uh, assign to a KPI. And the KPI has many components, uh, units per hour, mm-hmm. uh, uptime, accuracy rates, and all that stuff. And consistently, we exceed those KPIs, right? In other words, the risk is taken away by the from the customer standpoint, At BG, we are responsible for delivering the KPIs. And so so when you talk to me about, when the question is, how do you create products and how do you innovate? It's about understanding beyond a simple question, understanding the challenges at the customer side, Mm -hmm. at a system scale, and co-innovating with the customer, the system level solution with software orchestration and uh, usability and everything else. And out there, uh, right now we have several tens of systems at the customer side uh, operating at uh, um, you know very high UPH, more than a human human capable UPH, and very very high accuracy that they're very happy with us. That kind of resulted in in some ways you refer to the uh, FedEx thing that happened. So so that's what we do at BG. You know uh, we have a lot of core technology innovations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we understand the customer needs. And based on that, we stitch system level solutions that can change the trajectory for the customer in terms of cost per pick uh, and uh, productivity per square foot, um, you know, and all that good stuff that needs to go to make them profitable, competitor, you know, be able to compete in this really low margin market space and all that good stuff.
1: Right. And I think the thing that you point that you made about sort of robot provide uh, companies and solution providers, you know, looking at the warehouse space compared to sort of the classic manufacturing industrial automation space. um, You're more than just a single robot provider. You've got some custom technology there. You also OEM some other pieces of your part, but you're a solutions provider, you're providing sort of an end-to-end solution that come come in and, and help solve a, a much bigger problem than maybe just a single sorting work cell, which of course you can do, but you've got other pieces around that, upstream, downstream, a variety of step points along that process of inventory to pack out and out the back door type of, uh, and as well as ingest. Uh, you know, product in. So um, I think that's one of the differentiators that, that um, Berkshire Gray presents. It's sort of, for me, it's sort of hard to put you in a bucket other than to say you're a solutions provider, but you're sitting right next to other sort of point endpoint providers who have a piece of the solution, but don't have everything else around. it. As you said, the customer's left to figure out the rest of the integration issues
3: for that. Uh, I, I believe that uh, our robotic picking system is maybe uh, you know um, they perform exceptionally well industrial scale at the accuracy and throughput that the customers are looking for mm. and uh, and we are incredibly proud of the team that built this stuff absolutely.
1: Yeah, I think the other pro- problem that you identified, which is sort of different than the classic manufacturing robotics um, example, is that uh, the type of packages that you're ha- helping or handling, the type of packages that you're ha- handling, uh, vary um, depending on the skew that the customer bought and how that's you know being assembled compared to the classic manufacturing work cell, which can be optimized for a single set of parts. So a single gripper that's, you know, highly optimized yeah. for to do a rep- repetitive task over and over and over very quickly, but not much variety, right, in terms of of what that's handling. So a, a much different and more difficult robotics problem to solve.
3: Mike, I want to build on something you've touched. And this goes back to building products and uh, and product management, and especially back to what BG does. When, you know, when we when we have something called a spectrum gripper,
2: okay? mm-hmm.
3: and uh, we never well and said this is going to be our gripping technology when we started. We said, what are the world skews that are out there that need something, mm-hmm. right? So we went and got like huh, tens of thousands of different skills. And we created this spectrum gripping technology that picks hundred percent of them within our bounds, which is our pick, you know, our picking does a certain weight limit. And below that weight limit, doesn't matter what you throw at us, we will pick it. For example, the loofah that we have in, you know, we use hmm. for showers that is very porous, right? So we pick that, no problem. Broccoli, no problem, cauliflower, no problem, boxes, no problem, packages, no problem. So what this means to customers is that they have a product with Berkshire Gray, and their business model can change. Their SKU sets may change. Their end customers may change if they are 3PLs. Doesn't matter. You have a solution that will accommodate whatever the customer demands today and into the future. So this is where the flexibility of automation that can actually very quickly adapt to changing customer needs and changing customer product types. Um, And tomorrow, for example, for sustainable packaging, the industry is moving towards a different way they start putting things together. No problem with Berkshire Grey. So so when they invest in products like Berkshire Grey, they are future-proofing themselves and also getting the kind of industrial throughput accuracy that they need. So this goes back to how do you innovate and how do you do products and how do you do product management is started the root cause, which is here's the customer problem. Let's mm-hmm. bring the right product that goes on it. And now you have a platform on which you can scale, right? So hopefully that helps your audience a little bit yeah. more insights into things.
1: Yeah, no, um, some recent news in, in the last month, and, and this is a this is a marquee customer that anybody would love to have uh, uh, representing their their solutions, and that was the deal with FedEx. You mentioned it earlier uh, as well. So kudos to the team. I know this didn't happen overnight. There was a wow. long, long runway leading up to that, and it, it also includes uh, we're reading through the deal. You know, the option to buy a significant amount of products from uh, Berkshire Gray uh, in the future. Uh, can you tell us, um, you know, sort of what workflows you're going to help um, FedEx uh, automate in their warehouses or their distribution centers?
3: Yeah, Mike, uh, uh, you know, I, I will refer to one of your earlier comments. Uh, I don't know if you have recorded it or before that is we are a public company. Yep. And so I'm only bound to say things to you that are publicly disclosed. I Fair. cannot go beyond that. Fair um, enough. Yeah. And so uh, First of all, uh, 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 we cherish our partnership with FedEx. Uh, you know, um, they are more than a customer. Uh, they help us co-innovate our products with them.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think we cherish their deep trust in Berkshire Grace' ability to solve very, very, very complex problems mm-hmm. that they want to solve in, the, in their warehouses based on their roadmap or where, where, where FedEx wants to be. Um, so, so uh, the the thing that I can tell you is that uh, the robotic product sortation and identification that uh, we talked about earlier is is uh, and the, how well it works in their warehouses is maybe uh, the ground on which FedEx built the trust on Gray. Mm. Uh We are, in, you know, these systems, for example, um, are installed in. Couple of weeks with total acceptance in few weeks.
2: Wow! So
3: literally, they go. These are pretty big systems, by the way.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, and so it takes. I think the fact that we can do something like that, where these are reproducible, uh, installable, used by the line operators at FedEx, uh, and you know, um, uh, something beautiful beyond just these systems, which is what does it mean to the line operator? You mm-hmm. know, uh, We have to think about it. Sometimes we get caught in this robotics and automation, but if I'm somebody who is actually working in a warehouse, uh, the systems we deploy enhances their work quality,
2: mm, Right.
3: which means now instead of working for four hours, you can work for eight hours, which means instead of going part-time, you can now become a robotic line operator and be there full-time, right? With full benefits and such. So if I'm somebody in the way, and we care deeply care about that, Mike. So if I'm somebody in the warehouse, the fact that now I can have a full-time job with full benefits is a world of a difference, by the way, mm-hmm. compared to the 43% turnover that people see in warehouses every year. Mm-hmm. And okay. you can't hire fast enough because you're bleeding. It's like a bucket with a very big hole in the bottom. Okay. The more you pour on the top, the more people are living at higher pressure in the bottom, right? So that's just not sustainable. And so, so what we do is multifold. One is for FedEx to create uh, a, an equipment that just works, exceeds the KPIs, uh, and makes their workforce loving the job they do, staying longer and all that. So there's a lot of tertiary and secondary effects to what Berkshire Gray does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, so to answer your question, um, you know, with respect to uh, e-commerce package distribution, with respect to uh, package handling, whether it's boxes or packages or tubes or it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, you could have uh, Christmas time photograph envelopes moving around, so it doesn't matter, right? The system mm-hmm. just works. So, so I think uh, so. You think of you think of what happens in a FedEx warehouse. Um, you know, we are hoping to impact a lot of it uh, partnering
1: with FedEx in meaningful ways. Interesting. So, um, look, I'm a, I'm a mobile robotic fan. I love yeah. uh, autonomous mobile robots. And uh, an element of what you do involves mobile robots. Um, yeah. Certainly, you've got a whole mix of robotic solutions from from uh, six-axis machines. Yeah. You've got a, a bunch of single-axis motion Devices as well. But uh, this spring, you launched a, a new solution called BG Flex. Yeah. Right. Uh, involves some mobile robotic elements. So uh, can you tell us what's significantly new and different with uh, BG Flex?
3: Yeah. So so uh, uh, another customer we cherish at BG, and we were incredibly surprised and felt proud when in their annual reports, they showed a BG Flex bot. <laughs> this is Target actually,
2: yeah,
3: uh, and uh, and uh, you know uh, you know we have done some very interesting and impressive things with them there. Uh, we built on top of it um, where basically um, you know as, as when you think about this. Um, the how customers are consuming products has changed in the last 3 years it's almost mm. like the covid was a shock to our system yeah uh, something that would have taken 10 years changed in 3 years and that is e-commerce uh you know in fact e-commerce we, we I know amazon was taking off but these were things that uh, you know hardware little but then here comes the pandemic and everything became a mm-hmm, mm-hmm. $5,000 TV down to uh, getting groceries to the home became e-commerce. No one thought, I, I remember having a discussion saying, no one will buy groceries in e-commerce because you want to go to the store and you want to touch the apple and you want to feel the apple. Come on, now you just get it home because, uh, you know, retailers have figured out to deliver you very high quality goods and you just implicitly trust your grocer. Mm-hmm. So So everything has changed. And, and so um, uh, COVID was a shock to our system, right? And so now when you think about that and you say, how, are my, how am I going to build a warehouse that will service this? Mm. Just think about it for a second. That means you need things to move through the warehouse in a day versus three months, right? You know, store replenishment warehouses, you can get SKUs in December or uh, let's say in June, from your supply chain in Asia, have it ready for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and they are stored in very tall shelves. And their storage, not buffers, it's just there. And three months later, when you place an order for a Christmas ornament, uh, here comes uh, either with a manual storage or uh, through ASRS systems. It comes down pallet or edges or cases, and then it's packaged for you and you sent home. Now in the world of New age e commerce, Uh, you want things that are fast moving, for example, things Mm. that are perishable. And so your inventory turns and how long you store has reduced to a couple of days versus two months, three months. So now when we think of storage, I think we need to start thinking of short term buffer, Mm. right? So think of it like your computer where you had a disk drive now replaced by large memory. And then you have memory-on-chip, right? Mm-hmm. Which okay. is short-term fast buffer. So what we have done with our BG Flags is we have created, uh, basically, uh, we have coupled, basically, our uh, fleet of robots that move on the ground, and they do an amazing job uh, with low and high-density buffer units. Mm-hmm. So what, what happens now is when you think of MFCs and when you think of back of the store, buffer storage, and delivery. And when you think of warehouses where you want to keep things for a very short time
2: mm-hmm.
3: and then you turn them very, very fast, you need you need a very different type of software orchestration, very different type of storage systems. And you want storage systems that are very flexible because one thing you want to store might be 12 inches and the next one might be 18 inches and the next one might be... So you want very dynamic density Good mm-hmm. things to come out. So we worked with a customer, <laughs> and uh, this was the need. And so, so we create, we actually announced a product that will do just that, which is uh, very fast inventory turns uh, to the new age customer that's ordering things that that needs to move through the warehouse at lightning speed compared to how it was before. And uh, something that actually accommodates customers' business changes in ways. Uh, to get very high cost per square, you know, throughput per square foot, and all that good stuff, right? So that is what BG Flex is all about, and that's what we announced uh, earlier this year. And so I think if I'm reading it right, they can, a retailer can convert
1: uh, any floor space into a flexible any-to-any sort of induction yeah. to to output sort of sortation system. So really, you're using the mobile robots and existing floor space hand right. handle the orchestration of what's going where, as opposed to fixed conveyors or fixed sorting systems. Is that basically the the design idea? Um, that
3: That's correct. And uh, we can do it in very small spaces. Mm. Uh, conveyors have its place. Conveyors move things really, really, really fast. Mm-hmm. So if you have products that needs to move very fast and you know those queues exceedingly well and it's fixed, nothing can replace a conveyor. But then if you have this MFC kind of concept or your concepts that need very fast, uh, you know, very short term storage and they need to move at a volume that our systems can accommodate. Exactly. And that's, I think there are lots of customers that want it. And that's exactly what we did.
1: Explain for you use the term MFC. I think that's a, a little bit of a, of a- microphone. Yeah, it's micro fulfillment. Yeah, micro fulfillment. I want to make sure for our audience that, that they know what that is. A little bit of a of an industry term that not everybody yes. understands. And we're talking about the endpoint sort of fulfillments near the, the actual store. So we're talking about in, in in urban areas where you've got small distribution centers that all they're doing is doing that sort of click and carry curbside. Uh, delivery of groceries and that type of thing and so your systems are supporting those types of, of deployments
3: then going forward is that true uh, you explained it very well mike and that's 100 percent right
1: so kishore uh can you maybe tell us how uh, companies can create labor resiliency in the warehouse and, and not be disrupted by labor disruptions in the future
3: I, at the end of the day uh berkshire gray and, and other automation companies um we are trying to solve complex customer problems. Mm -hmm. And the customer problems, one is labor. And when we talk about labor, uh, there are two aspects to it. There is scarcity and turnover.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Scarcity, there is 10 plus million job openings. And there is a 43% turnover. And somehow those two don't map, right? When there is scarcity, you don't have turnover because in most industries, you try to keep your employee and do what is necessary. Yeah. The challenge here is working in a warehouse is just not a human's job, literally. You know, The expectation is somebody is standing at a station and they're moving things thousand times an hour and supposed to do it eight hours a day and supposed to do it 360 days a year. At the wages the warehouses pay, it's just not sustainable.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, the fact that someone needs to unload a truck and that two, three trucks in a shift It's just not, these are semis that are going. So when we talk about labor, I think there is oversimplification as to what the labor problem is. It's a two part thing. One is the shortage and the other part is the turnover. And I think people should focus on the turnover as much as the shortage itself. You know, and why there is 43% turnover. And this is where uh, intelligent enterprise robotics like what BG does can make a huge difference for companies is to make the job a lot more enjoyable and you become a full-time employee and just like work like you me and others that come to office every day excited and do something meaningful, right so that's number one the second piece that uh i think is very important is supply chain resiliency mm-hmm. right and uh and uh, this is a very complex topic because uh In this year alone, we have seen 95% of companies actually saw some disruptions,
2: Mm -hmm. right?
3: And uh, this is a complex topic in the sense that uh, what happens when supply chain resiliency breaks down? One, uh, inflation goes up, right? The industry we are in, we serve countries and people. So when things break down in our industry, you impact economies, not just individual customers, not like a 3D printer that somebody buys, right? This is like almost like, uh, I would say, the front lines of what happens in a country. So I think as an industry, uh, we need, in my opinion, including retailers and BG and others, to create resiliency for economies, such that when there are shocks in the system, we, uh, we cushion the impact to the people at large. So the mission is bigger than robotics. The mission is bigger than a warehouse. That, you know, this is a, in my opinion, a uh, highly critical industry to serve the population at large, right? Uh, just imagine what happened to baby food formula. How can, that cannot happen. Imagine someone having a baby at home and not able to give baby the milk and the food necessary. It's, I just can't even fathom it, right? right. So yeah. I think, so There is. there is, I think, as leaders in this industry, whether you're at a retailer or a robotics company, some thoughtful process has to go into how do we make economies resilient with resilient warehousing, with resilient supply chains, resilient stores and e-commerce. And this become critical because it's about competitive differentiation of countries. These are people. So there's a lot that's, that is to this. Uh, I think, uh, I think uh, uh, you know, we can talk about this in so many levels, whether it is um, many places. Now, recently, Amazon had this, uh, uh, you know, quarterly results and something I picked up, which I think is really meaningful. They talked about two kinds of costs. One costs that are not in their control, which is fuel and other stuff. But mm-hmm. what they said is they made a lot of progress on controllable costs and more importantly, productivity of fulfillment, uh, fulfillment at the warehouse. Mm. And the only way you can increase productivity at the warehouse is through ro- intelligent robotics and automation.
2: Mm-hmm. I think
3: there is something to learn for everybody here, yep. which is uh, you need to be ahead of the crisis, not with the crisis or not after the crisis. So, so leadership in terms of strategy and execution is absolutely the key. The last one is customer expectations. Mm. Right, we have seen that change, and it is going to continue to change. When we talk about resiliency and when we talk about uh, adaptability and flexibility, this is about creating a warehouse uh, and the supply chains in front and the last mile, which becomes extremely critical, hmm. such that such that there is that resiliency across the board. And and I think. Uh, that's what I'm proud of what BG does or Berkshire Gray does is to, I think we are doing our part in a meaningful way. And I think there's a lot of acceleration that needs to happen and to the benefit of the people at large. And that's how I see it. And this is, uh, I think a very important topic, Mike.
1: And as you said earlier, I think the, the big, uh, disruption that nobody anticipated was the pandemic. So uh, again, that just gave the market the opportunity now to make the investments in solving some of these problems that I think industry had been struggling with because labor's been a problem for a long time. And then it was exacerbated by one, the fact that people uh, didn't want to come to work because of the pandemic. Uh, Two, they couldn't find enough labor. And so again, um, robotics in that case, uh, and automation in that case, you know, provided a, a different type of buffer to be able to still fulfill some elements of of the the warehouse uh, without the need to 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 solve that with additional labor, uh, which as you st- said at the top of the question uh, was a bigger a big problem.
3: Forty three percent turnover that tells you it's not yeah. a job people want to do. Yeah. So how do you make it better so they stay in the job eight hours a day and you create the same kind of uh, the same kind of uh, uh, resiliency mm-hmm. with labor, like other industries, whether it is yeah. Google of the world, right? You don't see forty three percent turnover at Google every year. Yeah. So how do we create that in the warehouse? And and that's where I think robotics uh, and automation uh, will play a very big role.
1: Great. All right. Um, well, I think it's been an interesting conversation. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, you brought it up. Uh, earlier. um, And that was the dance that you and I had about what you can tell me and what you can't tell me about your roadmap. And it's certainly um, a lot more difficult to do that dance as a product manager in a public company uh, versus a private company where the rules are a little bit different, right? Because what you say may influence somebody's decision to invest in the company or not, right? Now you've got got investors as yet another part of the listening public, but what's been your experience about how you manage your team, how you change sort of your portfolio um, discussion and how you work with the sales team to communicate your roadmap and portfolio futures to uh, p- prospective customers being in a, a public company versus what you are able to do, uh, say, in, maybe in a private company where there's fewer restrictions on on how far out you can communicate, you know, new products right
3: yeah so um you know i've been part of public companies before mm-hmm. and really a small young startups where joined after series a and then we went to series b and such right and you do this long enough and and it comes down to one thing what you want to do is create value a sustainable value for your end customers mm-hmm. uh that has a large market right at the end of the day that's what you do. And you do that whether you're a public company or a private company. And that's what we focused on. Now, with respect to telling the world on what we are doing, it's a process as a mm-hmm. public company, right? We have legal team. We have our um, uh, investor relations and uh, and uh, basically our CEO or CFO or COO. So, so it, it, we have to, you know, there's a due diligence process mm-hmm. before we announce something or say something. Uh, because you're hundred percent right. Uh, you know, uh, our um, our accountability to our investors is paramount,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, and to our customers is paramount, and we have to adhere to all the standards that are set. So so basically, it's an internal process before we announce something, and and so uh, I have to go through that. But at the end of the day, you know, for me it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because uh, you have to create value to your end customers that is that gives berkshire Grace a sustainable competitive advantage and that creates tremendous value for our end customers you do that well the market takes care of itself long term uh you know and i think uh, successful companies will do that well and uh, and you create trust in the marketplace when you do that well
1: and it's i mean the process the whole portfolio process much longer Uh, In in, in a lot more inertia in terms of what's happening in a public company as opposed to a startup. You talked about being at a startup where you're more agile, which is what we expect out of startups, and the ability to pivot when you discover an opportunity for your solution that you didn't understand earlier. Sales brings you a new customer with a big opportunity. You can make those decisions much faster about, hey, let's go chase this. We just need to change the product in this little bit away and we can sell yeah. something.
3: And uh, I feel like BG is a startup, actually. Uh, oh. You know, our internal culture and ethos are we are a startup.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, we, are, we are a startup with large customers and the, the industry has tremendous amount of problems to solve. And we partner with our customers. I, I think the nimbleness hasn't gone away at all. In fact, oh, uh,
1: good, you know, good I see to hear. that
3: continuing in a big way.
1: Great. All right, Kishore, well, it's been an interesting conversation. I love where we've taken this, a little bit of uh, product management best practices to begin with, but uh, then digging deeper into really what's a a very interesting portfolio uh, that Berkshire Gray brings to market. And uh, you're a company with, as you said, some very high visibility uh, uh, accounts to to support now. Um, So good luck with all of that. And, uh you know we're looking forward to to watching you guys uh, grow in the next piece of innovation that you guys are going to bring uh, to the market
3: uh first of all, thanks a lot Mike for inviting me to your podcast. and again hello to all the viewers out there and hope everybody is having an amazing summer. Uh, and if you want to check us out a little bit more go to www.boxrire.com and if you have any problems to solve, don't hesitate to call us.
1: Great. Well, thanks again for for joining us this week.
3: Thank you very much, Mike. Have an amazing day.
0: Thanks again to Keyshore for joining us on the show, Mike. Any final thoughts about your conversation with Keyshore?
1: Well, I think I hope he came across in the interview. I had a great great time talking to Keyshore based on our mutual product management backgrounds, and and just uh, I want to make a pitch to anybody else who's listening, who's a product leader in a robotics company that I've uh, got this back burner project just trying to dig deeper into you know PM best practices and and what we can do to continue to educate you know new PMs to the role of of managing a, a robotic product, and uh, Keyshore certainly has that experience. So it was a fun interview.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Nice job, as always. Thanks again to, to Keyshore and Berkshire Gray for helping us out on the show. Before we go, we just want to mention Robo Business and the Field Robotics Engineering Forum one more time. Two shows co located together October 19th and 20th out in Santa Clara, California. There'll be 100 plus exhibitors, 60 plus speakers the Pitchfire Robotics Startup Competition, a startup workshop for anybody who's at a new, really young robotics startup or looking to launch a robotic startup plenty of networking opportunities much much more we do want to plug again the career fair which happens at the end of robo business so just after the show ends on october 20th there's a free career fair for anyone who's looking to get into robotics for the first time or is looking to make a career pivot to another robotics company it's free to attend anybody who registers for the career fair Gets a free expo only pass to both days of Robo Business. So, not only is it a good opportunity for you to network with your future potential employer, but you can also peruse the show floor and check out some really cool robot demos demos of enabling technologies, network with other people there, it's going to be a really great time. We're hoping to have a a, a demo of agility robotics, digit biped robot at the show as well, and many more exciting things. If you want to check out the full agenda, check out the exhibitors, check out the speakers and all the fun stuff that we have going on at those two shows, you can go to robobusiness.com to learn more, reach out to Mike or myself. If you're looking to learn a little bit more, happy to help get you to the show. New episodes of the Robot Report podcast drop each week. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify. You get the idea. We'd love for you to leave us a review. Give us a five-star review. Get this podcast in front of more listeners to help move this industry forward and to help educate everybody and and share some insights from some of the experts that we have on here each and every week. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, If you haven't subscribed, do that. Leave us a rating you know the deal. So on behalf of Mike Oitzman and the entire crew, I'm Steve Crow. Thanks again, folks, for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week.